Today's guest is Dr. Cam Sapa. Dr. Cam is a psychologist based in LA. He's also a professor at UCSF Med School and also the founder of a number of startups um, in the health space. Uh, most recently, Maximus, which is a telehealth company um, based on serving the needs of men psychologically, but also physiologically. And it's very fascinating because uh, he had a lot to say about testosterone and masculinity and, you know, obviously stuff that I'm into. He and I actually were connected through a mutual friend uh, in regards to his startup and the work he's been doing. But then I looked him up and found there's a lot of things uh, that I found interesting of what he's been working on. Um, one being a term that he coined that became popular, has become popular in Silicon Valley, uh, which is dopamine fasting, which relates quite a bit to a lot of the things we speak about here on the podcast, attention, cultivation, uh, focus, being off your screens in a healthy, uh, creative, constructive way. So this is a fun conversation. Uh, if you want to learn more about his work, you can follow him, uh, Dr. Cam, on Twitter, Cam Sapa on Instagram, and his startup, B Maximus. If you type in bmaximus.com, you can find out more about his startup and his growing community. Right now, you're listening to episode episode 101. I keep forgetting we're in triple digits. Episode 101, Dr. Cam Sapa, Dopamine Fasting, and Maximus. The Ruando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit ruando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. All right, Dr. Cam, welcome. Hey there. Hey. Um, yeah, so we were connected by a mutual friend uh, who told me about your company, which we could briefly speak about. When I looked you up, there's a bunch of things that I found resonant. You know, you work with men, uh, stuff you're doing with Maximus. Um, but the first thing that caught my eye was the dopamine fasting idea, which I thought was very cool, very resonant with other things I'm interested in and we speak about on the podcast. But I also know that it's been um, misunderstood and maybe wrongly criticized and stuff. So could you actually explain what it is before anything? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so dopamine fasting is basically an evidence-based technique to help people manage addictive behaviors by restricting them to specific periods of time and practicing fasting from impulsively engaging in those behaviors in order to regain behavioral flexibility. So it comes from CBT or what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of the gold standard evidence-based psychotherapy that's useful for dealing with all kinds of things, whether from mood disorders to um, uh, addictions. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a private practice. Um, and, you know, psychologists very traditionally treat addictions of all sorts, usually substance oriented, whether it's alcoholism or sort of uh, drug uh, use independence. Uh, Ironically, one of the, the things that I was noticing in my practice, and this is maybe a little bit of a function of the fact that I work with a lot of Silicon Valley uh, tech CEOs and VCs was they were definitely showing, um, you know, signs and symptoms of addiction, but it wasn't to drugs. It was actually to digital technologies. Um, and there is a little bit of a controversy about, well, can you really be addicted to the internet in the sense of there isn't the same physiological withdrawal, um, like there is with like uh, abusing something, uh, a drug like heroin. But I would argue, um, in terms of the definition of addiction, in terms of is it causing significant impairment in their lives? Uh, you know, some people are spending hours, uh, many hours a day uh, on sort of these digital addictions and it's certainly getting in the way of their social life, their occupational functioning. Um, and conversely, it's causing a lot of distress, which is, is, is bothering them, right? That they're having this problem that felt out of control. They wanted to cut down, they wanted to quit. And they're not able to do so. So in a lot of ways, 
uh, I would argue there's certainly problematic internet use, uh, whether or not you want to call it addiction, that is certainly a problem and certainly worth addressing and certainly worth treating. Um, and I was seeing this more and more, both in, in my practice, but also in the greater world, right? Um, unfortunately, these social media platforms are designed by the very technologists to keep your eyeballs on the screen in order to sell ads, right? They're designed to be as engaging as possible. In fact, there's a, a Netflix presentation that's out there that talked about how Netflix's real competition is sleep, as sad as that is, right? Because there's only so many hours in the day to get your eyeballs on it, um, which I was like, ah, you know, that morally and ethically, uh, you know, I, I think technology is uh, more... To me, it's morally neutral. You can use technology as a tool for good. You can use it for bad. And unfortunately, I think ad-driven models are, are sort of net negative for society. And the only way that we can combat it, um, unfortunately, uh, I think is through techniques like dopamine fasting. Because unlike a uh, alcohol or recreational drugs, there's no physiological reason that you absolutely need heroin, obviously, if you're hooked. Mm. You, can, you can certainly be without it. Nobody needs to smoke. Um, and so abstinence-only models can work um, when it comes to substances. It's very hard with sort of digital addictions, however, to be abstinent only because unless you're, I don't know, a farmer or something, and even farmers use technologies these days to not use the internet or not use the computer at all, whether socially or professionally, it's often required. Even, you know, young kids now do all their homework. Uh, they, you know, have to get their assignments through email, other things like that. It's very, very hard to avoid. And so Kind of the consensus now in the field, which is my field of clinical psychology and psychiatry, is, is that essentially a moderation-based approach um, is the most practical way of dealing with sort of digital addictions. And so dopamine fasting is basically predicated on that idea that, okay, if we can avoid it altogether, how can we sort of uh, live with the evil that we know um, and, and make sure that, you know, we can use these things, these technologies, without it running uh, our lives, right? There's a great a speech that, in fact, Prince gave at some Yahoo Awards where he was like, you know, the internet's cool, but you should use it, not let it use you. Um, and that's sort of the, the underlying sort of idea about it. So th that's kind of the high level. And I'm happy to talk about how to actually do dopamine fasting if that's interested. As, uh, interested yeah, yeah. Well. I mean, it's a kind of a tricky thing. I was just going to bring up like you could stop drinking, you could stop, uh, you can't just stop using the internet, especially like. I, I really romanticize farmer life. I try to as much. And even in my videos, I say, please get off your screen, which is probably terrible for my analytics. But uh, my entire life is based on things like this. Like I could never get rid of screens. My livelihood is based on it. And most professions that allow you freedom require this evil. So it's kind of a tricky thing. Um, are you familiar with Mark Lewis by any chance? He wrote the book, Biology of Desire. Hmm. No, I mean, he's a big proponent of the desire model of addiction and how all addictions are really like evolved desire circuits that have been exploited by some artificial uh, stimulus, uh, which is essentially what screens are doing with our, it's like, it's a, it's a hard with like, it's almost like how do you use heroin uh, responsibly? You have this thing that's built to, to trap you essentially, trap your attention. Uh, so what is the protocol? Like someone comes to you, especially with Silicon Valley guys who are probably more dependent on technology than most people for, for good reasons. Like what, what do you take someone through step-by-step step, uh, to, yeah. to control this? So I'll talk about the protocol, um, but first I want to talk about your this, this point that you brought up about mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the models of sort of addiction, um, but to kind of understand like where this is coming from, right? 
the reason that that technology in particular is, is um, so addictive is because it's almost designed to be that way. Um, because it essentially, like most technology essentially uses principles of behaviorism, like conditioning um, to reinforce behavior. This example I always give is, you know, most of your apps have this little red, uh, you know, uh, flag or circle that mm-hmm. alerts you that you have a new message, a new notification, a new stimuli, right? Now, when you first got an iPhone, that red dot didn't mean anything. It was called, it was an, it's an unconditioned uh, stimulus as we call it. But over time, we essentially learn that that little red dot means you got a little reward coming, right? You got, yeah. you got some juicy new article, someone's messaging you, sliding into your DMs or whatever it is. And so you're anticipating now a reward and that unconditioned stimulus becomes a conditioned stimulus, right? Yeah. And the simply getting rid of the dot so feels good, like checking off a box. Like it's kind of irritating to have the notification there, like unchecked. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Absolutely, and that's ironically why you know part of part of uh, you know the, the protocol, like uh, techniques like grayscaling, um, actually work because making your phone black and white or gray, um, the association has been with literally the red dot, and so even though you see the dot there and you've drained the color from it, that's not what you've been conditioned to do. And so ironically, it takes the, oh man, the impulsivity of I got to respond and clear that to your point away. And now it sounds stupidly simple, but if you understand conditioning, changing colors or changing the stimuli from what it originally became conditioned to actually works really well. Um, But the reason that it's particularly addictive is because um, of a phenomenon that I call double reinforcement, right? So when you're seeing this little notification, it's serving two purposes. One, it's providing a positive reward, right? You're getting this novel, juicy, interesting um, uh, bit of stimuli that comes from clicking it. Um, but second, you're also getting this negative reinforcement of alleviating an underlying negative emotion, right? So most people, they're lonely, bored, uh, stressed, uh, anxious. And so when you're feeling those bad feelings, that's when we're most likely to just reach into our pocket, grab our phone and alleviate that negative feeling. So it it would actually works really well, right? Because you're you're feeling this nebulous negative emotion and then now you're hyper-focusing and you're forgetting literally your problems, right? You imagine when you're watching a great movie, you know, the world sort of fades away and you get to enjoy, you know, this escapism essentially. And and while it used to be having to go to a movie theater and engage that for two hours, we can do that now in two seconds. And that's what makes it particularly uh, addictive is it's taking away the bad and it's also introducing the good. And so it's doubly reinforcing and twice as addictive in my opinion. It's like everyone has a morphine trip in their pocket. (laughs) Sorry, can you say that again? Totally, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, absolutely. Um, And so the, the question is, okay, how do we actually do dopamine fasting? So um, it's based on two sort of principles from CBT. The first is called stimulus control, which is as we've been talking about these stimuli, if they're the triggers that are uh, you know, contributing to bad behavior, let's remove the stimuli, right? So these are like basic uh, you know, principles of behaviorism, which is like put your phone away or at least make it as hard to access as possible. So that like, for instance, if you're sitting there and working and, it's, and your phone is sitting there in your peripheral vision, it's tempting. Um, and it's causing sort of distraction. It's better to literally put it out of sight, out of mind, as they say. Um, second, obviously engage in alternative activities that are incompatible with a stimulus, right? So like, it's hard to do sports and check your phone or stress eat at the same time. 
Um, and so you can do things that are fundamentally incompatible. And obviously now there's sort of website blocking software um, as well that makes it hard to you know, uh, overuse or cheat from these things. Um, I believe iPhone has built-in screen time limits. You can literally put limits on individual apps or about daily use um, every day. And so uh, the idea is if stimuli or the trigger are, are what's uh, perpetuating or, or triggering the addiction, you really wanna kind of control uh, the stimuli as much as possible. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is this a principle called exposure and response prevention or what's called ERP is the acronym. And the idea is obviously you can't stay away from your phone or the internet all of the time. And so the times that you are exposed to it um, is you wanna introduce a little bit of uh, what a lot of your listeners may be familiar with which is this principle of mindfulness, right? So the idea is you want to start noticing when the impulse arises and what are the thoughts and feelings that you're experiencing in that moment, right? Most of the time, it's very almost subconscious when we grab for our phone, we're not thinking about it. You just grab it impulsively. You're not even, there wasn't a necessarily a particular stimuli that you were aware of, right? But you may have noticed, ah, you know what? I was, I, I sat down in a waiting room and I started feeling bored because I don't know how long it's going to take. And that's what I was feeling. And that's when I grabbed for my phone. And just becoming aware of that is the first step. The second step is once you become aware of like, oh, I'm, I'm doing that thing again that I'm trying not to do is practice what we call urge surfing, right? It's to notice the desire to engage in the res response. You're like, I'm feeling bored. I feel like everyone else is probably doing the waiting room around me, um, but I'm not going to give into it. And what happens, the magic of what happens when you don't give into it is it weakens that classical conditioning over time. So it may be very hard the first time you don't kind of scratch that itch, but what happens is that anxiety or that boredom will go down every single time you don't give in. And so that's a process that we call habituation. You habituate over time. And so that anxiety, which gets alleviated. So you should almost think about it. as like building a muscle. Every time you anxious and you reach for the phone because you're giving in and you need to alleviate it. You need to soothe yourself in an uh, unhelpful way. And so when you learn, hey, I can feel anxiety, I can feel boredom, I can feel negative emotion and not push it away, avoid it, suppress it, you're essentially building that resilience muscle. Um, and what's that's what's restoring your behavioral flexibility so that when you feel anxiety, when you feel boredom, you do not need to automatically engage in an unconscious behavior. You can choose to grab your phone or you can choose not to. And that's what it's, re it's really all about is restoring the choice element rather than this impulsive compulsive uh, addiction where it feels very out of control. What about for someone whose um, awareness muscles are really weak? Like um, I'm thinking of like, I have friends who've gone through uh, substance abuse recovery and it's like, they would, they've shared, like, they kind of know when they're doing the bad thing, but it's almost like a self-loathing element. And like, maybe for most, the rest of us, like, we know we should go to bed, but like Netflix is saying new episode in three seconds. It's like, ah, I know I should do this. And like, or, or someone who's really, really got an emotional need that needs self-medication. Like, what do you do in that situation? Yeah. So the, the first thing that, um, you know, is, is important in terms of building awareness is just the, the practice of what we call self-monitoring, right? Whenever I have any client who wants to work on any particular behavior, 
the first thing that we often do is just track it, right? You can't uh, manage what you don't measure, right? Is an old management adage. And so if they're like, okay, I don't know how many times I'm grabbing my phone today. I'd be like, okay, well, let's track it for the next week before you even need to change anything, right? Let's just see the, 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 the depth and breadth of the problem. Fortunately, the phones oftentimes now have things where it'll, it'll tell you how many times you picked it up um, every single day. It'll tell you how many hours you're using it. Um, and so the first thing is just to start to track these things. And even if it's not totally in your awareness, you can look back retrospectively and say, I may not have been aware about it in the moment, but I can look back at the end of the day and say, okay, this is the amount of time I spent. This is the amount of time I picked it up or whatever the behavior is, right? It could be compulsive uh, 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 hair pulling, nail biting, any behavior. You can just really a sheet of paper, a pen, a notepad, and just be like, your job today or the next week is to write down are you doing triggered it right so that people can start learning what are the triggers that are pushing their buttons and you're right people are not aware of it and so that's the whole point of self-monitoring is to increase that awareness that's a practice in and of itself so that they can start to learn hey are there certain times and places that i'm essentially more likely to use which is absolutely true right when we're hungry angry lonely tired and bored right uh those are um high high likelihood situations for people to use. And for some people, it may be certain, certain things, certain times, uh, certain places, it may be particular emotions. And that's where you individualize and learn essentially, like I said, what pushes your buttons. So that comes with, with practice and awareness. And obviously, look, if, you, if it's a serious enough problem, you know, the idea with dopamine fasting was to almost open source some elements of CBT that they can, if you're, if you're kind of dealing with a light sort of addiction, uh, deal with it on your own. Obviously, if it's more serious and you're talking about substance use or like if you're talking about eight to 12 hours of internet gaming and it's a real problem, obviously go work with a mental health professional um, who needs to kind of monitor you, be a lot, um, keep closer tabs and, and, and may provide need to provide adjunctive treatment as well. Yeah, I want to ask you more about this and also specifically with men, but I, I kind of have like this meta topic that I wanted to hit on. Um, so about the term dopamine fasting, because I know that New York Times kind of misunderstood it and maybe attacked it just because it was a buzzword um on this on the no, show they, 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 they attacked it because they hate the tech community and it, it was a convenient excuse to slander it and the writer who uh in fact wrote that article later wrote a mea culpa on her newsletter talking about how she basically wrote hit pieces for a living and felt guilty about it that's why in fact i wrote a follow-up piece to that new york times article literally called why the media lies to you about dopamine fasting and the truth is uh, the media industry is, uh, New York Times is essentially a tech company nowadays. They're, they're as guilty as social media is in terms of their job is to write clickbait, right? Um, and rile people up and get as many eyeballs and views because that's how they get advertising dollars and subscribers. In fact, they ran Facebook ads on that particular article uh, oh. in Silicon Valley because I would get hit with them uh, in order to, pr to promote it. Even though I, I, I wrote the writer and I was like, this is what dopamine fasting is. Here's the science on it. She didn't use any of it because it didn't fit her narrative of this is, uh, you know, what silly Silicon Valley people do is they avoid all stimuli and, and don't socialize, right? That was the whole thing, which is complete nonsense. I was like, no doctor is going to tell people not to socialize or exercise or uh, do some sort of weird aesthetic Sabbath. Um, so ironically, but that's what sells, right? You, you, you make up some outrageous story. It's literally a lie. She literally lied about it, not knowing what it was. Um, because it sells, uh, it sells ads, it gets more clicks. Um, and so that's the irony is, is 
the article about dopamine fasting is exactly what you need to be dopamine fasting from because the media is trying to steal your attention. Does the New York Times hate tech companies because they do it better than New York Times? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, publishing has been decimated by tech, right? You have mm-hmm. these sort of tech first companies like BuzzFeed who essentially took over the internet um, and really hurt subscription sales. And so the only way for these publishers to survive, because a lot of these newspapers went out of business, was to essentially become digital publishers themselves and compete by switching to their model, which is not writing quality long form journalism, it's to write clickbait. So yeah, I think they're, they're, there's that and there's a political agenda by the people who run it um, clearly as well, uh, which is unfortunate. It's not just the New York Times, by the way. I, I don't want to mm-hmm. just like single them out um, individually. I think they have a particularly well-known, it's not just my opinion. You can read about it on Twitter. Um, you know, agenda biology, biology, Srinivasan talks about this all the time. Um, but yeah, it, to me, it's the funny thing is I've talked about this in interviews before. Um, you know, I, I'm not a particular, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't hate the media. There's obviously great journalists and great publications. Um, and and, and some, some of the people who I did work with uh, really did a good job actually writing about dopamine fasting, talking to neuroscientists, talking to professors in an objective way. There's other folks who were just like uh, interviewing professors and were like, hey, have you heard about dopamine fasting? And the professor was like, no. And they're like, well, here's what it is. Uh, you don't talk to anyone, you don't exercise. What do you think about that? And they're like, well, that's a terrible idea. And they're like, great. Uh, professor says it's a terrible idea. And you're like, they don't even know what it is, right? They almost like feed, feed the, the, the um, you know, quote that they want to get in order to write what they want to say. Um, and that's, that's the unfortunate reality of a lot of modern media, not all of it. Um, but it, it kind of highlights why it's so important to do dopamine fasting. By the way, just, I want to add a little um, a bit, because I actually haven't fully explained the protocol. Um, there's two parts of dopamine fasting. Um, what I call the fasting schedule and the feasting schedule. And so if you're familiar with like intermittent fasting, right? The idea is like, you shouldn't probably be eating and grazing 24 hours a day. That's probably not how we ancestries, ancestry sort of eat, 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 eaten. Um, you do the same thing with technology. So the idea is with the fasting schedule is basically when do you not engage in the addictive behavior? My suggestion for most people is spend one to four hours at the end of every day, depending on obviously your work and family demands, disengaging from whatever it is the behavior is. So we're talking a lot about internet. So yeah, shut off your internet and technology and phone. Don't use it for at least an hour at the end of the day, ideally maybe four. So at the end of the work day, evening, turn it off. Um, One weekend day, uh, 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 one day per weekend. So a Saturday or a Sunday, try to uh, kind of fast from whatever the the behavior is. Uh, One weekend a quarter and even one week a year, like go on vacation and truly enjoy it and don't be in front of your phone or whatever it is. Now, these are suggested guidelines. They're not strict rules. If it's easier to start out an hour a day versus four hours a day, then just kind of go for it and you can kind of ramp up to whatever it is. Um, but that's a very helpful idea. It's just like intermittent fasting. You should just shut off the, the, you know, the behavior at some point. And then the, the, the corollary to that is sort of the feasting schedule, which is when do you engage? So it could be basically the opposite of the fasting schedule in terms of, okay, um, if I'm using, not using my phone for the last one to four hours of the day, I guess it could be, um, you know, on limits uh, that I can use it the rest of the day. Obviously, if you need to work, that makes sense. But if you find it to be particularly problematic, you're still overusing it. Let's say you're like way, you're using way too much social media during the day, even with that one to four hours, you may need to structure it to specific limits, right? So you may say, I'm not going to use social media for more than 30 minutes at a time. I'm going to set an alarm or a timer. 
so that I don't kind of lose track of time. Um, and I'm only going to do that, whatever, uh, the beginning and end of the workday, I'll give myself 30 minutes, one hour maximum, right? And this is in fact what the Chinese government has instituted as national policy, which is really interesting. Mm. If you are under the age of 18, you can only use uh, vi uh, video games or computer games for an hour and a half a day during the weekdays and three hours a day on weekends and holidays. There's a limit and you can't do it between the hours of 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. when you should be sleeping. And software developers actually have to comply with this. They have to build it into their software so they don't make addicts out of uh, essentially the, the Chinese youth population. So um, I think China and Korea, because you know they, they have a much bigger uh, user base and actually had high-speed internet um, in terms of adoption uh, far earlier than we did, started to see the extent of this problem. And they've been instituting both these policies, which essentially resemble dopamine fasting and even boot camps for, for addiction recovery uh, because they've seen how, how bad it actually can get. I think we're about 10 years behind uh, uh, where they are and we're gonna see this as an increasing problem. So that's why it's really important to kind of institute this on your own. Obviously, we don't, we don't have a government that tells us what to do, but it makes common sense. Parents essentially do the same things, right? Even before there's internet, you put a limit on how much television time your kids use and said, hey, during the week when you're in school, you can't watch that much. Maybe you can watch a little bit more on the weekends. A lot of this, I think, was almost traditional in some ways. And we forgot about putting limits because now you got this little device in your pocket 24-7. And so we have to almost reinstitute some of those norms uh, for ourselves uh, so that we can make sure that we're not going overboard as well. Yeah, I, I think I, I first heard you mention that uh, China stat in another interview, and I was like, oh god, like this is the end of the West. Like they're taking over. Like if they can control, like if we have zombies in our next generation, and they're all, it's like uh, it made me worried. <laughs> but um, actually, I mean, I was going to bring up intermittent fasting as a comparison before because uh, mm -hmm. I've spoken about propaganda on this show a few times, and you know, cultural brainwashing or marketing. And my example is actually intermittent fasting and how when you slap a term on something, people perceive it more as real. Like I've been skipping breakfast for years and people would criticize me. And then once intermittent fasting became a thing, I was like, oh, yeah, he does that thing. In practice, I'm doing exactly the same thing. And I'm just curious, like, because you coined the term dopamine fasting, if there's any thought in choosing these words as opposed to something more abstract, like the Dr. Sapa method or just explaining it in a way that couldn't be criticized, like impulse control is important, like kind of the word dopamine fasting almost made it vulnerable to being attacked in a sense. Um, I was just wondering if you had any conscious thought in that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, um, look, if the most technically correct term would be dopamine mediated behavioral fasting. But that is a mouthful, and it sounds like something like a <laughs> clinician is like me would yeah. say, technically correct. And nobody would read that article, right? So this is the the, the irony of the whole situation, right? I'm, I'm talking about the, the the horrors of sort of clickbait. But on the other hand, if you if I wanted to get this technology out, it is a technology if you think about it, this protocol out for good, you kind of have to use a little bit of those those tactics to some degree to disseminate it and get people interested enough to read about it, right? The irony is this was actually popular even before the whole media picked it up, right? It got like over 100,000 views because I think people resonate with like, yeah, man, this, this stuff is kind of taking over our lives and it is problematic and I, I would like to spend less time on it, right? I, I cite this study, in fact, that it essentially tested dopamine fasting. They went to college students and said, hey, two, I'm going to split you up randomly into two different groups of people. Uh, one group, keep using Facebook and social media. The other group, don't use Facebook for a week, 
right? And they found that they, uh, by, by doing that, they cut down on 13.3 hours of Facebook use a week. So almost two hours a day, they were on Facebook. Yeah, a part-time job. Yeah. And, and, and there's two consequences to that. One, depressive symptomatology went down 17%, right? So it wasn't a depression intervention, but people's mood feels better when they're not engaging in addictive compulsive behaviors. And the second thing, without the researchers telling them, they naturally engaged in more health behaviors, right? They spend more time cooking, working out, doing all these things. Why? Because now they had an extra 13 hours they didn't know they had, right? So a lot of the time, you know, and I, my clients especially, they're like, oh, I'm too busy. I know I don't have time. And it's true. They don't because all of our waking time is filled up or those excess time is filled up by, um, you know, uh, oftentimes internet or, or other sort of problematic use behaviors. And so when we cut it out, we literally feel better and we have more time and we engage in, in better things to um, engage with. So yeah, it's a little bit of a catch 22 uh, in terms of the title. Um, you know, in retrospect, I probably would have, you know, might've picked something a, a little less, but I'm not sure it would have uh, made a huge difference. I, I think a lot of the controversy didn't really come from the title. It's that people didn't want to understand it. Um, it's, it is under, it's pretty easily understandable. The first time, anytime someone talks about it, I'm like, did you read the article, right? When you read the protocol and you're like, oh, it's based on CBT, and the evidence on CBT is it's, it's so strong um, that um, I don't think there is any controversy from any clinician or scientist who legitimately reads it, right? Um, and if you get around, like, should it be called something else? But like the protocol itself, if you talk about, hey, is it a good idea to use stimulus control when you're over, over using behaviors? If you're having trouble with impulsive behaviors, is it helpful to use exposure and response prevention? Um, uh, yeah, I think any, any good clinician worth their salt would, would say that's, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a good marketing term. I think it's better than the other options. <laughs> Fair enough. One, one thing to add, since you brought up intermittent fasting, to me, intermittent fasting is in fact a type of dopamine fasting. We've been talking a lot about internet and sort of digital addictions, but you can use dopamine fasting for any problematic behavior. And in the article, um, I talk about basically the six most common sort of behavioral addictions. So uh, internet gaming is one of them. Um, the other one I, I would say, look, pornography, masturbation, sexual addiction can be quite a problem. In fact, for men, I think it's increasingly a problem. You hear about it all the time. That's why there's almost like these organic phenomenons, like no nut November, where people try to cut down on the excessive mm -hmm. masturbation. Not that masturbation itself is problematic. Um, it can be a healthy behavior, but obviously if you overdo it, it can be problematic. Um, certainly gambling and shopping has, um, become uh, a problem. Um, it's always been a problem, but now it's been much more easily accessible thanks to the internet. Um, that's a very common sort of addiction. Uh, emotional eating, I think, is a huge problem. In fact, that's why 70% of America is overweight or obese. Um, and I've spent a lot of my career working on that issue. My first company helped half a million people lose 5 million pounds. And I would tell you the majority of those people had some sort of underlying emotional eating or stress-related eating condition. And so if that is a problem, you can sort of use intermittent fasting as a type of dopamine fasting to uh, cut down on sort of this emotional eating. So just like the urge surfing that I was talking about, you're starting to notice what are the feelings that I'm trying to stuff away by literally starting to stuff my mouth um, and finding other, uh, you know, better ways of dealing with that, increasing my willingness to have those feelings without trying to numb it through food. Um, the last two categories are thrill novelty seeking. Sometimes people engage in like, you know, extreme uh, adrenaline seeking behavior in order to feel better. Uh, if they're kind of a depressive type um, or, or kind of manic, quite frankly. And obviously there's sort of traditional alcohol and recreational drug use, but, but all of those things um, can, you can use the same principles to deal with 
um, if it's something that you feel like you can deal with on your own. Cool. So I just want to dial in on two of those things. I mean, and transitioning to speaking about men, because I know you mostly work with men, right? Uh, porn and video games are particularly male addictions, right? And perhaps because mm -hmm. they connect to healthy male behaviors of seeking a mate and adventuring around the real world. Um, right. I'm curious what you have, what you've experienced with your, in your practice with these kinds of male specific addictions or any certain patterns you see amongst men in particular? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there are sometimes um, sex differences in the frequency of these. I mean, technically, uh, obviously, both sexes can engage in, in any and all of these, and they do. Uh, but for instance, males are much more likely to be gamblers. Um, I think there's something just about like the financial orientation, the thrill of the risk uh, and betting. Um, and you're seeing us right now with like this crazy crypto and stock market, mm -hmm. which is essentially legalized gambling uh, that folks are engaging with. Uh, women are much more likely to engage in online shopping. Um, but ironically, there's almost like a gambling-esque uh, uh, element to it in terms of like finding a great deal or getting a great sale. Um, and there's a, there's a similar thrill uh, and capturing of that. So, you know, it's interesting because they kind of, kind of the similar things can manifest in different ways. Um, obviously with like, you know, the male libido uh, and also um, how pornography sites are oriented towards men, quite frankly, um, you see that and compulsive masturbation as a, as a much more frequent issue um, amongst men. Um, and I think it's just the availability, right? Like Play, Playboy has been around for decades. Uh, it's not like we didn't have, you know, pornography or certainly like the ability to masturbate, but the ability to do that, um, a lot more privacy than there used to be. Now everyone's working from home. Um, and, and you've seen sort of problematic examples of that on Zoom, probably. Um, it, it, it's, it's just much easier to engage in vices, quite frankly, than there ever has been. And then the other part of it, which is, I think, really relevant to your question, is I think men are um, uh, more unhappy, probably, than they've ever been. Um, because they don't sort of fit into modern society. There's a lot of negative mixed messages um, that quite frankly, like masculinity is toxic and bad. There's a lot of shame and stigma. Um, and, you know, uh, a lot of guys, especially young men are very adrift. So you, you combine those two things, uh, men who don't feel very good. They, they don't feel, uh, they feel out of place. They feel very lost. They don't, they haven't found their way. And then you have vices that make it very easy to numb, suppress, avoid those negative feelings. And then you got the kind of the powder keg that you, that we see going on now which is you see a very small a segment of men who are hyper successful and they're taking advantage essentially of uh, the downfall uh, and profiting incredibly over the last year. Some of, some of the people I know um, have, um, while the rest of, I would say the country and the majority of men um, are actually suffering uh, quite a lot as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I heard uh, it was with one of your investors, I forget which interview you're talking about how, um kids used to be able to play in the street. Like that was a thing 20 years ago. And, and like, now there's like a huge reduction in danger. And I, I'd imagine this affects men the most because we're, we're kind of wired to seek out certain challenges. And maybe that's why guys get stuck on EverQuest or World of Warcraft. Like they get to do that. I mean, we used to have, we used to have an ax in our hand. Now at least you could do it in, you know, in a video game world. Uh, do you have any like suggestions or prescriptions for let's say the young guy who's just gotten through puberty and he wants like his, his biological urges want him to conquer the world. And all there is in front of him is 
something super not masculine or video games? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think those underlying needs and urges go away. The question is, how do you sublimate them in a way that's positive, pro-social, and productive, right? Um, so uh, I, I do think that young boys and men especially have a need for challenge. Um, and unfortunately, to your point, video game um, developers essentially, to the Mark Lewis thesis, uh, you know, channeled that towards questing in a video game to collect a bunch of points and coins that have no real value, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, okay, uh, uh, boys want to build, they want to learn, they want to challenge. And so, you know, whether it's you working on yourself or if you have a brother or cousin, or if you, if it's your kids that you're talking about, find something for them to work on. That's hard, quite frankly, right? Uh, I still think sports are a phenomenal outlet for, for boys, young men, and adults, quite frankly. I'm, I'm a huge fan of adult uh, sports leagues, right? Like, unfortunately, for a lot of people, their sports career kind of ended at high school. And, and it makes sense. Like, most people aren't going to become professional athletes. But the, the team building, the camaraderie, the physical activity, uh, all, all the positive elements of that, um, I think, are, are actually a, a, a lifelong lead. I actually used to play in a basketball league pre-quarantine. Um, uh, and I loved it. It was like the highlight of my week. I get to hang out with some really smart, successful guys. So fun conversation, but you get to just ball out and enjoy yourself and enjoy the physicality of that. So, uh, I think it's really important that we find, um, challenges that are aligned with our values. Right. So for me, like basketball is a great example. I'm like, okay, what do I get out of this? It's a challenge, right? I'm building a skill. I'm, I always want to be a better basketball player, but it, it's in line with my physical activity goals. It allows me to do obviously some cardio cross training uh, in addition to my weight training and allows me to, to bond and, and uh, you know, hang out with guys and, and build connections, genuine connections. So it meets my social value as well. And so that was a very values aligned, challenging behavior. And I think the challenge for us in modern society as men is to find those things. Because um, here's the reality, life is really hard. Right. If you are, uh, an, uh, if you are ambitious and you you find things to tackle, there it will be challenging enough just to get through, uh, you know, your challenges of what what whatever it is, getting through school, um, trying to get promoted at your job, trying to learn the guitar, play, be a better basketball player. These are these are difficult things, um, and so I think as, as long as you set your sights on the right activities that are values aligned, um, you'll have the natural opportunity to challenge yourself to learn, grow. Uh, develop calluses uh, physically and metaphorically. Um, and, and those will be the right things for people. Actually, I want to ask you about sports because I had this debate with a, a friend recently where I was arguing the same way as you, like oh, sports are really important, especially for young men, for boys, children. And he brought up a point, which I hadn't thought about, which is like, that's great if you had the opportunity to do well at sports relative to the environment, especially when you're young and it seems to matter a lot. But he was pointing out that a lot of guys, maybe the guys we don't think about, who just couldn't dribble or they, you know, they're the Charlie Brown who couldn't kick the football. They had really bad imprinting. And almost, you know, when we see an adult who hates exercise, who just like just has really negative feelings with that, it's almost like sports was one of the worst things for such a person. And, you know, this it's a bit of a tangent, but like I do think, you know, a lot of the men's crises or millennial issues kind of go back to childhood, the participation trophy thing was probably really bad for our generation. What do, you, what do you think about that? Like as far as like matching challenge correctly or potential negative effects of the wrong kind of challenge for a kid? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it has to be like uh, age appropriate. I mean, if you, if you follow Chicken Mihai's uh, model, who's the guy who came up with this concept of flow, mm. right? The model basically says that the challenge has to meet the skill level, right? It has to be commensurate. Like if you're playing with someone, basketball with someone, and they're just blocking every single one of your shots, you're not going to enjoy it, nor are you going to get better because you're not like, you're not even getting feedback in terms of whether it's going in or not. Same thing. If you're like way bigger than the kid you're playing with and you're making everything and you can just like go and you know, do a layup every time. You're also not learning how to shoot. So it has to be obviously commensurate. Um, and ideally you should be always kind of like doing something that's just beyond your capability, just beyond your th threshold. One of the blessings I had, I had a bunch of neighbors that were like very gifted athletes and they're a few years older than me. So every time I play basketball, I'm like, they're better than me. And I had to get good really quick. And I wouldn't have gotten so good if I had been playing quite frankly with my peers. I was playing with a guy who was like the pole vault champion or the high jumping champion of like the city uh and so they're like dunking at 14 and i'm like i better learn how to like shoot if i'm going to get around these guys um so i think that's part of it but I, I taking it to sort of the modern context you know what the average number of pull-ups that a male can an adult male can do i think i really like three it's really zero low. Zero. It's like average. Per, like, here's the thing. If you're talking about, I didn't get picked or I didn't make the varsity team in high school. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry for that. And you know, we should probably get some therapy and move over that trauma. But the reality is I actually think unathletic guys, if by sheer will and determination can be far more athletic than the average person, right? If, if the, if the median is somewhere between like zero and one, which is the median, right. Um, with just like training one to three times a week, um, you will be stronger than 80% uh, of people. Um, and so I actually see, especially as you get older, right? In high school, it maybe it is a little bit more genetics. It's a little bit more talent. Like the people naturally gravitate towards sports. But uh, I'm telling you, like now, when, you, when I see those uh, people in their 30s, uh, in fact, the people who are like the quarterback of the high school, my high school team are not in great shape. It's ironically the nerdy guys who have high conscientiousness and discipline and they've worked out a lot, they're in much better shape. So I think the lesson there is, look, uh, uh, perseverance and consistency are by far the best things. And it doesn't have to be a sports team. If it's just like, um, whether it's, I know you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, going to the gym regularly, lifting weights, uh, whether it's by yourself or with a buddy, whatever that you enjoy, it could be dancing for God's sakes, um, walking, uh, whatever it is that you like to do, if you continually uh, use the principles of continual improvement, progressive overload, like you do in strength training, um, you will not only be incredibly healthy, but you'll be far beyond most of your peers. Cool. On that, I mean, uh, with uh, your work with men, especially, so many issues of masculinity come down to male imprinting. And you know, there's a lot said about absentee fathers or maybe anxious avoidance with fatherhood. Have you noticed any patterns with like... Um, with men with certain issues and also like is there any concept of like the ideal upbringing for a young boy <laughs> nowadays let's say yeah, that's a great question um i, I think um and it, it, i don't even think this is a controversial statement i hope it's not um uh, i think boys need uh, a father figure um in their lives um, and unfortunately, uh, due to the divorce rates and the family structures in modern America, that's not available to at least half of boys. Now, the good news is I use the word father figure, not a father. Uh, ideally, it is your father, your biological father. Um, but if that's not the case, there's lots of great examples of 
um, young boys who grew up to be phenomenal men because they had a father figure. Now that could be a stepdad that came in and stepped in, even if it wasn't their biological father. Um, it could be a teacher. It could be a sports coach, right? In fact, um, one of my favorite articles, and I recommend everyone read this. Um, I'm a huge Damian Lillard fan because I am a basketball fan. And he wrote an article in the Players Tribune about just the, the very gritty upbringing that he had growing up and um, the positive male role models he had. He talked about how the, the coach of his um, youth basketball team, his name was Phil, and he was like a painter, right? So he'd come up to practices like splattered with paint all over his clothes, but he loved, you know, those kids. He gave him his heart and soul and he was really a father figure. And he said, look, I, a lot of the stuff that I learned in life was from Phil. Um, and he kind of made me the man that I am and taught me like work ethic and teamwork and discipline and all those, all those values and principles. And so um, even if the father is not around, unfortunately, I do think there can be surrogates essentially. Um, like I said, teachers, coaches could be a psychologist if need be. Um, uh, and, and ideally it's often other members of the community in fact, if you understand sort of male initiation and male ritual, it was never the father's only and primary responsibility to initiate a young boy into manhood. It was in fact supposed to be the other members, the other adult males in the village or the community that was supposed to take them through that process. Those may have been like uncles or older men in the community that's like, oh, okay, your dad taught you this stuff. That's great. But no father, no individual human being is perfect, right? And I think this is a little bit of the, um, the danger in terms of what you're talking about. Like, what's the ideal childhood or what's the ideal father? No father is ever going to be ideal, right? All of our fathers will have let us down in some way in terms of, as Robert Moore said, they'll never um, achieve the, the full archetype of the king, right? Because they're always going to be a disappointment because they're a human father, not some idyllic king. So the way that we supplant or supplement that, I should say, is you should have multiple father figures, all right? Because maybe your, your dad was really great at teaching you about, I don't know, your professional development, but couldn't tell you anything about relationships because maybe his relationship was with your mother was kind of messed up um, and he's not a great role model there. And you got to learn that from other guys. Or maybe your dad wasn't a sports guy and you get that from your coach. Uh, maybe your dad was not emotionally available and you get that from a, a best friend that you can have, like an, you can tell all your secrets to or a psychologist where they're not going to be pushed away that you talk about, you know, your problems or get angry. And so uh, to me, the way that we raise uh, young boys, young men is, you know, we have to have redundancy and we have to have resilience by having a community really does take a village, in my opinion, uh, to raise men. Well said. I, I heard you speak about um, like cultural archetypes, I think, for men. I think you actually referenced Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, I think someone else, uh, Marie Kondo, I think. And actually, it's, it reminds me of something I spoke about with a therapist uh, recently who mostly worked with men, where he noticed that when a guy starts therapy, he tends to be obsessed with Jordan Peterson. And then in his theory... You know, that's because Jordan Peterson speaks to the inner three-year-old boy that everyone wanted a strong father. But then every guy gets bored with Jordan Peterson and gets obsessed with Joe Rogan. One, I was wondering if you notice anything like that in, in your practice, but also what do you think about like these cultural father figures that people pass like through stages on? Yeah, interesting. Um, how do you notice that in my practice? But maybe I, I, I work with a little bit of a different clientele. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I, I think these influencers are playing an important role in society, right? I have a whole theory about um, 
that influencers are essentially um, uh, playing kind of this surrogate a little bit more on a macro level, right? So as opposed to like, maybe it's your uncle or this teacher or this coach in the village, even those are unfortunately not always present because, you know, American families are very nuclear. We're not often in close touch with our relatives, um, you know, these days. Um, and the civic engagement in American society has gone down tremendously. There's a whole book about this that I commonly cite called Bowling Alone. People used to be a part of a lot of different clubs and leagues in order to be socially connected. And we're not once we kind of graduate from school, right? And, and do those sort of extracurricular activities. And so as a result of that, that need is still there. And so I think people are unconsciously gravitating towards the positive male role models that they need. Um, so Jordan Peterson classically is the wise father figure that a lot of people, I think if you didn't have sort of that father figure who can provide sort of wisdom and discipline, um, uh, then, then that's what Jordan sort of provides. I make the analogy that Joe Rogan's kind of like the crazy uncle that you wished you had. He like introduces you to like taboo topics, like testosterone replacement therapy that he's publicly on, um, and DMT and all kinds of funny stuff. Um, and, you know, it kind of expands your mind a little bit that, that maybe topics that your father, Jordan Peterson, wouldn't talk about, um, you know, he expands your mind into. Um, and other folks like that, like David Goggins, Jocko Willenick are really popular, mm -hmm. you know, Navy SEALs, and they're very warrior archetypes, right? They're, they're kind of the disciplinarian. They're the coach that maybe you, you had in high school and you miss. Uh, and you, whenever you need a kick in the pants, you go listen to some David Goggins screaming at you to carry the boats because it riles you up and gets you motivated. So I think that's what's happening is I think people are gravitating uh, towards that which they need and they pick their influencer, in fact, based on that. The funny thing is we used to say in psychology that, you know, if you, if you tell me your drug of choice, I can tell you your personality, right? Like depressives really love stimulants. They're more likely to be like Coke or meth users because it kind of raises their mood. While if you're an anxious type, you like downers, you like alcohol and you like um, weed and things like that to kind of bring you down. I almost think it's the same thing with influencers. There are influencers are obviously not a drug, but they do kind of serve your underlying need and that the type that you're kind of gravitate towards is maybe a little bit kind of like looking into your shadow and be like, that's the part that's kind of missing. Uh, and so maybe I'm unconsciously sort of seeking that. I don't think that's a bad thing. As long as you are like semi-aware of that, right? That you're like, okay, this is not, um, you know, obviously a real relationship that you're having. But I, I think, um, and I talked about this one time over Twitter, that there, there's almost like different hierarchies of, of male role models that you can have. You, you do need real people that you can have real relationships with, right? These are best friends, obviously your family members um, uh, that you can, you know, look here, even touch, right? Um, so that that's sort of the first tier and there's no substitute for, for real relationships, kinship. The second tier um, can be a little bit more, um, you know, like it can be professional relationships, right? Those are, these are people that, um, you know, maybe a psychologist, they're not gonna be your best friend, but you can have a professional relationship with a teacher. Um, so you're working with them in that context. The third tier, maybe, yeah, influencers, right? And maybe influencers and maybe athletes, like kids love, um, they look up to professional athletes. They have the posters on the wall. That's been true for generations, right? And there's a, there's a, there's a purpose for that, even though they won't build a relationship with them, it's an idealized figure of like, you know, a certain archetype that they're striving for. And even if it's a dead guy, it could be a biographical figure you're reading about Napoleon or some emperor back in the day, but you're reading about Cyrus the Great's virtues and how he, you know, uh, allowed for, you know, 
uh, religious equality like thousands thousands of years ago and uh, you know principles that you may want and values that you may want to use in your life that can kind of be like the last tier. So I think guys actually benefit from all kinds of guys um, literally like present in their lives and alive and, and maybe historical figures that you can you can never engage with. Um, but there's lessons to be learned from all of them. And I think it's helpful to actually diversify the male role models um, because yeah, uh, you know, like Robert Bly talks about this. Like he was like, I was initiated into manhood by these dead poets. I unfortunately, like my dad was not the guy to do that, but I, I was able to get it from someplace else. And so if some of them are not present, maybe you can get it from other places. That's cool. Yeah, so I've been working on this uh, history of masculinity series the last few months and just reading all of these stories like Cyrus that you mentioned. And I've already noticed that like when I'm about to complain about something, like some first world problem, I think about like an ancestor with a club and I'm like, I'm just being, I'm just being a little punk right now. <laughs> um, cool, yeah, so I wanna ask you about Maximus uh, and we're coming up on the hour. Uh, I know you're in early stages, but can you share a little bit about what's going on? Because from what was briefly told to me, it seems very fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is almost like the, the, the capstone to you know, our conversation in that you know, I, I was noticing two societal trends. You know, like I'm, I'm not a masculinity scholar. I'm a clinical psychologist, but I work with a lot of guys because, you know, most of the executives that I work with are men. And so I was noticing these issues coming up, right? So we talked about the issue of addiction and dopamine fasting um, sort of coming up. The, the other interesting ph uh, phenomenons and trends that I started to notice was uh, um, this sort of war against masculinity which I thought was very bizarre, right? So like Gillette came out with that commercial talking about toxic masculinity. And even more surprising to me, the American Psychological Association, which is responsible for training of psychologists, was coming out and saying, yeah, like masculine traits like stoicism, aggression, competitiveness are harmful. Um, and I was like, I don't think the research in fact supports that. You can cherry pick some research to fit that argument. But it, to me, like, just like we were saying, it's the sublimation of those traits that's important. Competitiveness is a critical part of society. I don't think any young man can, can survive in society without understanding that, you know, in a capitalist society, you gotta compete, you gotta perform well, you gotta get good grades, you gotta perform and, and get into employer in order to feed yourself and your family. That's not a bad virtue. Um, obviously, if you're doing it in a way that's unethical or kind of like, you know, you're at the detriment of other people, but that's why you do sports and you introduce sportsmanship. You can be competitive and gracious, right? Um, and so I noticed this kind of this strange kind of narrative socially and in the media around sort of uh, making masculinity toxic or saying obviously some of the bad behaviors, which we should absolutely repudiate, right, like sexual harassment, assault, things like that, which are obviously real problems and we should absolutely address are somehow an intrinsic part of masculinity, which I do not think is scientifically valid at all. Um, and so, you know, I think as a result of that, you're seeing this trend where masculinity has become a dirty word. And you're seeing that, in fact, in polls, right? I, I talked about this Pew poll where when you ask guys our father's age over the age of 65, uh, what, you know, do you consider yourself or uh, how masculine do you consider yourself on like a zero to six point scale? Assuming five to six is a highly masculine, 82% of older men consider themselves highly masculine. You ask guys, 30, it's like in the 40s, right? So literally it's the first time in history that the minority of men uh, consider themselves highly masculine. And that's changed within one generation. So the question is like, what the heck happened in the last few decades where, you know, all of our fathers think they're highly masculine and, and the younger generation is not. I think part of it is it's really this social reason where masculine, it's become a dirty word. It's become associated with machismo, um, with the, some of the negative 
Uh, I don't think that's true. And that's why uh, to address that, we're promoting called tonic masculinity, tonic being healing, the opposite of toxic, um, and showcasing on Twitter uh, examples of guys being positive, healthy, using their courage for to save animals and children, um, using their competitiveness to do great things, create great works, and show all the ways masculinity can be channeled in a positive way in order to create good role models, as we were talking about. And so that was kind of the original inspiration for it. The other part of it was this interesting physiological trend. So testosterone rates and, and sperm rates, and I didn't even believe this until I had to like go look at the research papers myself, have been going down 1% per year, which doesn't sound like a lot until you, you do the math and you're like, that means 50 years ago, the average guy your age had 50% more testosterone and 50% more sperm uh, than you do. Um, and so I was like, maybe part of the reason guys aren't feeling masculine is because they aren't as masculine, literally on a biological, physiological basis. Um, you're not feeling as masculine if your testosterone levels are down the toilet. And so uh, the reasons for this are multifactorial. Obesity is one of them, uh, changes in smoking, uh, sedentariness, uh, depression, but also there's these endocrine disrupting plastics that seems to be um, kind of the leading theories for why this is happening. Happening. There's toxins like uh, you know BP, um, PCBs uh, that are uh, disrupt our, our endocrine system that produces our hormones. Um, and uh, are unfortunately causing this. And so, you know, seeing this trend happen both physiologically and psychologically, I became really interested in this problem and said, okay, how can we, how can we fix this essentially? How can we make men masculine again? Uh, to back to where they, they, they were, quite frankly, in our father's generation, uh, because it's coming at a detriment. And so, you know, how we started is we started to launch a men's community, right? So we have groups on Discord, Facebook, and Reddit, um, and it's focused on, providing that social support and accountability. So um, we put people in the small guys in small groups. And so as they're working on their health behaviors that help maximize their testosterone, we all obviously know diet, exercise, sleep, focus, healthy relationships are all critical to normal hormone function. And so there is a lot you can do behaviorally um, to make sure that your hormone function is optimal um, and also provide that camaraderie, that brotherhood, that positive role models um, to guys as well as part of that process so that you don't have to do it alone. I, my thesis is self-improvement was never meant to be done alone. You always did it as part of a team, uh, a group, a sports team, a tribe, a village, a community, and we've lost that tradition. And so now that we have online technology, we're bringing people back together. And that's why we call the company, even though the company's Maximus, it's called the, the community is called the Maximus tribe. So that um, while you still have your friends and those primary relationships that you need in real life, now you have this network of a thousand guys too. So if you're like, hey man, I wanna figure out what my life's direction is and I wanna learn how to be an engineer, I guarantee you there's a few guys in that group that do that thing and can help mentor you, tutor you and, and put you on the right track in a way that maybe like your father, or your best friend can't because they're not engineers. So it's that extended network that we're giving people. Um, and then we're working on the physiological side as well. Um, there's some very exciting developments that we'll talk about at a later time. Uh, to kind of, uh, you know, ad address some of these endocrine disrupting chemicals and also bolster uh, men's testosterone in a way that's more natural um, as well. So that's what I'm really excited about uh, working on. Um, and uh, people can check us out. The website's MaximusTribe.com. Um, you can join our communities immediately. It's free. We don't charge for that. Um, you can join, you know, our squads and work on your behavior change. And we have um, a podcast and I have a weekly call and radio show Thursdays at six o'clock Pacific. Uh, I'm a psychologist and psychiatry professor. So you have any questions about this, 
I'll, I'm happy to do uh, Q&A or free coaching, uh, if you will, um, and provide that as a service. And in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll kind of launch um, the, the more clinical side of things as well uh, and to provide kind of services and products to our, our, our uh, community as well. Awesome. <clears throat> so the physiological stuff will be out maybe in the next month or near future? Yeah, we're going to we're going to do a pilot um, in the coming weeks. Uh, cool. And then a few more weeks after that, we'll kind of launch uh, nationally as well. Um, nice. And I'm, I'm really, really excited about that, by the way, because there's there's actually a ton of research behind what we're doing. You know, I, I pride myself on really uh, all the companies that I've started have been uh, really based on the science. Right. At Omada, I created online weight loss programs. We have over 13 publications now showing what we're doing is effective for weight loss um, and reducing blood sugar levels. My second company, I started a ketogenic nutrition company, tons of research showing that low carb ketogenic diets are the, uh, in fact, should be a first line treatment for treating diabetes. Uh, and same thing, I think there's really a, cu a cutting edge way to address testosterone um, that, that's been validated by a lot of research studies. And in fact, we're gonna collect our own data and continue to do that. Um, that I think is very powerful and very effective. Um, so uh, a, lot, a lot of exciting things in store for Maximus community. And I think, uh, you know, I, I really love what you're doing with your own community. Um, and it's kind of interesting, you know, Robert Bly back in the day said, there isn't a men's movement, there's many men's movements. And I think you're seeing this where people almost starting their own Facebook groups, their own community is a great work that you're doing um, and we're doing in parallel. I think it all supports the same mission, which is, you know, how can we, uh, you know, help uh, make better men um, and so I'm really happy to, to join you and support what, what you're doing. And, and likewise, if there's members of your community that can benefit from what we're doing, we're, we're happy to collaborate and share because we're all in this together. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm very excited to see, uh, you know, after you launch, uh, I think it's very fascinating. And it's really great to see a physician like kind of pushing it back against like the APA's stuff on masculinity and all that stuff. So yeah, I'm thrilled to connect. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Likewise, uh, enjoyed it very much. Um, and, you know, people can continue the dialogue on social media. I'm at Twitter at Dr. Sapah, D-R-S-E-P-A-H dot uh, com and um, uh, Cam Sapah on Instagram. And you can search Maximus Tribe for the company uh, that's on basically all the social media channels. So I'm um, happy to continue the conversation online. Cool, cool. Yeah we'll, add... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll add all your links to the show notes. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to catch the next live episode of the Rwando podcast, make sure to tune in to the Mask Underground Facebook group Tuesday night, March 16th. I am going to be streaming the next live episode on something I call The Groove. It's a concept that came to me this weekend while dancing that I'm drawing to some analogies in life of finding your flow state creatively, but also individuation. I'm going to go a little deep on some philosophical concepts a la... Robert Persig, Zen Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, but also touching on some of Zan Perion's views on the art of beauty and some other things I think are applicable to life. So if you want to catch that, make sure you're in the Masked and Underground Facebook group Tuesday night. I'll see you there, Tuesday night U.S. time. <laughs>